And then you have the media, which is, I would say, the most powerful of the three. And they are working in concert always to prevent our goals, to make sure that the most liberal candidate that they can get through gets elected. Secretary of State Chuck Gray in Buffalo. And here we go. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to yet another magnificent installment of Morning Reload. From very high above all other puerile and verminous forms of Wyoming mainstream media, this is Cowboy State Politics. I, of course, am your illustrious host, David Iverson, firmly ensconced behind the silver Cowboy State Politics microphone and broadcasting to you from the base of the Bighorns, in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, my friends, and welcome to the program. This morning, I'm going to bring you some of the comments Wyoming Secretary of State Chuck Gray made in Buffalo over the weekend. It was kind of an impressive crowd for a Saturday in Buffalo. I mean, it was beautiful outside, probably 85 degrees. So a political event on the weekend, on a pretty day, if you could get anybody to attend, that would be a feat in and of itself. Anyway, it was a pretty good crowd. I didn't count all of them, but I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 people in attendance. Not in attendance, though this should come as absolutely no surprise to anyone, was Wyoming Representative Barry Crago. We can't really expect that he's going to show up and listen to a conservative talk. I mean, that might make his ears bleed or something. Also not in attendance was Johnson County Commission Chairman Bill Novotny. Now, you can't expect him to show up either. He's probably been instructed by his lawyer not to go anywhere near the Wyoming Secretary of State. Finally, not in attendance was Johnson County GOP Chairman Mike Madden. Yeah, he has an allergy to conservatism as well. No doubt he thought he had something better to do. Maybe go to an auction or something. But after the event, his pickup was parked on Main Street, so I can't imagine what he could possibly be doing that would be more important than listening to the Wyoming Secretary of State. And that brings up a good point. There are five statewide elected officials in the Cowboy State. There's the governor, the secretary of state, the treasurer, the auditor, and the superintendent of public instruction. That's it. So when one of them shows up in a small Wyoming town to hold a town hall to talk to Wyoming citizens, you would think that that would be quite the event. Oh, and also not in attendance was the Johnson County clerk. This one is striking because the Secretary of State oversees all of the county clerks. Of course he was going to talk about election integrity, so if you're the county clerk, why not show up and hear what he has to say? That would probably make too much sense, I suppose. Anyhow, I'll bring you some of his comments here in just a little bit. This morning's broadcast is brought to you by the Buffalo Wool Company. They're the purveyors of the most incredible socks that I've ever put on my feet. They'll keep you warm in the winter and dry in the summer. So if you want to go check out some of these socks, go to thebuffalowoolco.com 
and get you some of the most spectacular socks you're ever going to wear. If you've been thinking about a new building for your property, you should contact my friends Nick and Jesse at Morton Buildings. Their phone number is 307-674-2532. They're the best at what they do, and they've been doing it longer than anybody else. It, it doesn't really matter if you want a garage or a barn, or maybe you want to put up a roping arena, or even a giant warehouse. It doesn't matter. Just give Nick and Jesse a call. Again, their phone number is 307-674-2532, or you can check them out on their website at mortonbuildings.com. Before we get to Chuck Gray's comments, I wanted to point out to you a very interesting article that was printed in the New York Times. It was penned by this lady named Susan Stubson of Casper. Now, you may have heard that name before. Her husband was in the state legislature and attempted to run for Congress, except he was soundly defeated. And rightfully so. Tim Stubson, her husband, is a big-time redcoat. The reason I bring these two jokers up is they're organizing the political action committee for the Wyoming caucus. You know, the caucus that was organized to combat everything the Freedom Caucus was trying to do in the House of Representatives? To refresh your memory, the Wyoming caucus is made up of the 31 very liberal Republicans in the House of Representatives. They're all of the people that wouldn't be caught dead associating with the Freedom Caucus. And interestingly enough, the vast majority of them campaigned on being conservative. One of their head guys is Representative Clark Stiff. You know, the one that donated to drag for a cause? Oh, and by the way, Clark Stith claims that he was donating to the Humane Society. It's interesting that his name shows up as a sponsor of the Halloween drag show that had several children running around while adults pranced around in women's lingerie. That Clark Stith. He is one of the head guys of the Wyoming caucus. Back to Tim and Susan Stubson, the organizers of the PAC, the Political Action Committee for the Wyoming Caucus. Susan Stubson penned an op-ed for the New York Times and listen to the title of it. You're going to love this. What Christian nationalism has done to my state and my faith is a sin. Now, Susan Stubson never explains what Christian nationalism is. I doubt if she can. It's a made-up term by the far left. If you voted for Donald Trump, if you're a conservative, or if you voted against Liz Cheney, here is what Susan Stubson thinks of you. Quote, Rural states are particularly vulnerable to the promise of Christian nationalism. In Wyoming, we're white, more than 92%, and love God. 71% identified as Christian in 2014, according to the Pew Research Center. And Mr. Trump? 7 in 10 voters picked him in 2020. The result is bad church and bad law. God, guns, and Trump is an omnipresent bumper sticker here. The new trinity, the evangelical church, has proved to be a supplicating audience for the Christian nationalist roadshow. Indeed, it is unclear to me many Sundays whether we are hearing a sermon or a stump speech. End quote. The implication being, of course, if you voted for Donald Trump, if you're actually a conservative, unlike Tim and Susan Stubson, or if you just disliked Liz Cheney and voted for Harriet Hageman, then you're part of some sort of circus roadshow. Now, keep in mind, these are the people that are running the fundraising arm of the Wyoming caucus. Wow. 
Now, there's a lot more in that article where that little piece came from, and I'll cover more of it on Wednesday's program. I kind of just wanted to prime the pump a little bit for you and give you a little dose of that Christian nationalism, whatever the heck that is. So Chuck Gray was in Buffalo on Saturday and held a town hall for approximately between 30 and 40 people. As voters, we hardly ever get the inside story of legislation that's passed and makes it through the governor's office. Sometimes we'll hear about a couple of legislative squabbles, and then that's about it. But we hardly ever hear all the inside baseball that happens. You don't really have to think too hard to figure out why all of these redcoats don't want a ban on crossover voting. It's how most of them get elected. The truth is, in the last primary election, there was around 40,000 votes that Liz Cheney got from Democrats in the primary. And think about this one. Let me just give you a little local small Wyoming town example. In the last general election, 943 people voted for Joe Biden. You can chalk up part of that to Liz Cheney-loving, Donald Trump-hating redcoats like Tim and Susan Stubson. But 943 people in a town of roughly 5,000, that's 20%. So crossover voting most definitely is a thing or was a thing until this past legislative session. So the very first thing that Chuck talks about is all of the inside baseball concerning the crossover voting bill. Here it is. Well, thank you, Laura. I appreciate you. And I wouldn't be here without uh, your help. There's so much work that was done in this room for our campaign and for the conservative movement across the board over that pivotal three months last year across Sheridan and Johnson counties, which we carried with very high majorities, myself and Harriet. And I, I want to thank you uh, for, for all of that work. And I view it as a trust. I mean, these first five months, I've really tried to hit the ground running, not just in delivering talk, letters, pieces of paper. I mean, whenever you read the paper, they just love printing the insiders, the letter they sent or the the policy statement they wrote. They never do anything. And, and when we talk about Wyoming politics, the central tension there, the central tension, and I know most in this room are pros at this, is, is three... A coalition of three groups, which are the insiders, which many people call them rhinos. I call them insiders. I use that word because that when you come down to Cheyenne, that is really what they are. They they sort of there's a lobbying class that funds their campaigns, and then in turn they fund Wyoming state government at very lavish levels that benefits those lobbyists, and they all hang out together. They socialize together and and so that's why i call them insiders and i know there's a lot of different terms that are out there i appreciate dave's term red coats i appreciate rhino but i i do think the best one you know a lot of people say uniparty i i think the best one is insider because i think that's the one that's most accurate so that's what i i tend to use um although i appreciate you know you got to keep things interesting so everybody kind of has their own their own angle on it. So you got the, the insiders, you've got the Democrats, which of course in Wyoming, there aren't many uh, that have a D after their name, but there's more at the national level that, that you know, Democrats and the Congress there, but, but they pack a punch, even though there are only seven in the entire state legislature, they exhibit a lot of influence, Chris Rothfuss, those guys, and they defeat a lot of good bills. And then you have the media, which is 
I would say, the most powerful of the three. And they are working in concert always to prevent our goals, to make sure that the most liberal candidate that they can get through gets elected. And that's what the conservative grassroots, which I know you all are, coming out here on a Saturday and, and uh, knowing most of you, and I look forward to getting to know you, that, that's what we're up against. We really hit the ground running the day after election day. We started a transition. Our transition team was Joe Rabino, who became our counsel, and uh, that's, he, he's done a lot of great work. Jesse Rabino is his wife. She's the head of the Freedom Caucus, and when I was looking whether to run for re-election for the state house last year, we were talking about starting the Freedom Caucus, and then when Ed Buchanan decided not to run again, kind of turned that over to John, and we had set it up so Jesse was going to kind of move into that realm. And so it was perfect to have Joe, who's an attorney, as well as Jesse, kind of come in as our, as our counsel. And one of the things I wanted to do is use that position. Previously, it was not a formal counsel, legal counsel. I wanted to use that position to try to separate us from the attorney general's office, who had put out a lot of bad rulings on election integrity issues and is hired at the pleasure of the governor. We're one of four states that has an attorney general that is served solely at the pleasure of the governor. So I wanted to try to bifurcate us a little from, from them. So I brought in a formal counsel, which the secretary of state previously didn't have. Then Jesse Naiman was on our transition team. He's uh, the deputy now. And then we also had Carrie Drost, who's the chairman of the Weston County Republican Party, and Nancy McCann, who is a conservative from Cheyenne. And we got to work right away on legislative priorities because our swearing in on January 2nd was five days before the legislative session. And having been as a legislator for six years before becoming Secretary of State, that general session is really when you have an opportunity to bring through key legislation. And our number one priority was to end crossover voting. And we started that and, and, and it was a high degree of difficulty. This wasn't something that, if you look on the legislative website since the year 2000, I mean, this had been tried almost every year, every year that I was a legislator, which is since 2017. And we, we said, this is gonna be our number one, our number one priority. One of the first things we did was decide to try to bring it through the House this year rather than the Senate. They, you know, Bo had tried to bring it through the Senate a bunch of times, and I, I thought that strategy, just having observed it as a House member, was flawed for a variety of reasons. So, called Jeremy Haroldson, who's a legislator out of Wheatland, friend of mine. He's the vice chairman of the Freedom Caucus. He actually stays with me now. Uh, you know, when when because I have a house now in Cheyenne. The statute actually requires me to have moved to Cheyenne, which was interesting. And the way it's worded, it actually says that you have to live in Cheyenne city limits. So that was, you know, I had to purchase a house in a, in a time frame, which was, so we got that done in the, in the session. And Jeremy, Jeremy uh, stayed there and, and asked him to run that bill as the vice chairman of the Freedom Caucus. And, and he agreed to do that. And we, we brought it through the House on a 51 to 9 vote, which I thought was fascinating, right? Because a lot of the folks that you wouldn't expect to vote for, for it voted for it at the last moment. Usually that means that there is some sort of understanding that the other chamber is going to kill the bill when the insiders all come in and you have a lopsided vote like that. 
But I was very happy about that margin. And of course, the Senate has a joint corporations committee that has three votes that we're never going to vote for it. So I, that's what happened to the Senate version. It got killed in committee by one vote. And in, they're out of five. You know, you only need three no votes over in the Senate to, to defeat a bill. So when the House version came over, we, we kind of had a plan to if it got referred to committee for us to bring it directly to the floor. And of course it was, the Senate president referred it within 30 minutes of it being sent over to that committee. But we were able to then with that maneuver, that motion to bring it directly to the floor, even though it failed, uh, Larry Hicks, we were on the phone with him, he agreed to do it, made that motion and it failed by, I think it was seven, it, it passed, I believe 1713. Then we had it on the floor in the second, second body, which is when things got really interesting because they were freaking out at that point. Their plan had kind of failed. And so they come up with this narrative that the way the bill is worded, that it would prevent an individual that turned 18 from being able to affiliate in the primary after the date of lockout which we have a very strong lockout period in this, in this bill. It's the day before the beginning of the filing period, which is about May 15th, meaning about 90 days. And that's about as strong, and it, it, you, you compare us with other states that have closed primaries, that's about as strong as you're gonna get that's gonna pass judicial muster. We, we had that argument that the insiders were bringing that, well, this is gonna prevent a new voter from being able to affiliate. And you read this bill, that's not what it says. I mean, this was, this was sort of a, a made up out of thin air, in my opinion, and the clerks agreed with us, and I don't always agree with the clerks, but the clerks agreed with us. They passed this amendment to change the bill in the Senate, which means it has to go over to the House again, which we were very concerned that it wouldn't come out of the House. So we said, no, we've got to reverse this amendment and on third reading, we brought an amendment to delete the amendment that passed in second reading, and it passed by two votes. So, yes. I just want you to get an idea. I know you're the hardcore, okay? I know most of you, and, and you're coming out on Saturday. I want you to know that we got this done, but it was, it, it took, there was a long process, and I'm not done yet. So we had, we had now the identical version to the house, okay? So that means there's no concurrence vote. It can't get, it doesn't have to go back over because it's the identical thing that they passed in the House of Origin. So now it goes to the governor. And it's fascinating because just like over in the House, the people that, that amendment that I was talking about earlier, it passed by two votes to fix the bill. But then the final passage was by, it was overwhelming. So when they saw the writing was on the wall, they just said, okay, we'll pass it, which is good. Anyway, it gets to the governor. He has, we were very careful on the timing on this thing. We didn't want them to adjourn, which resets the clock. If, if we adjourn, then he gets 15 days to make a decision. We said, no, we're gonna, we're gonna give him the three days that he's allocated in the Constitution if they're in session. So that's why we we're trying to speed this thing up. So he had three days to make a decision. I get a call on, on the evening of, of day two. I told him, I had met with, them on a slip meeting, I said, you know, Mark, if there's any questions on the legal aspects of this, they're making some wacky arguments, get a hold of me. Okay, let's talk about it. 
because I, I didn't want him to veto it. Well, then the, on day two at about 5 p.m., he has about 27 hours to make a decision. I get this call from somebody saying that this thing is in trouble. <laughs> so we brought in Joe Rubino, our counsel, and to call Drew Perkins, who's now his chief of staff, and he said, yeah, we have some questions about whether this, it goes back to what this narrative that had been brought in the Senate that somehow this was gonna prevent a new voter from affiliating, which was totally wrong. So he says, well, let, we have some questions on this and, and the clerks are, have concerns. Well, I called the clerks, they said, no, we don't have any concerns. We agree with you on this. So eventually he says, well, come in and we're gonna meet with the attorney general tomorrow, which is the day the governor has to make a decision and we're gonna hash this out. So I immediately called Joe Rubino, our counsel, and I said, we've gotta write a memo. We've got to have our arguments down pat on this issue. And, and so Joe, and I told him, you know, we, we worked through the outline. I said, you've got to write the memo of a lifetime here. <laughs> he, he's up till 2, 3 a.m. and I'm getting the different versions and we were collaborating on research with all of our, you know, Jesse Naiman, our other attorney and uh, myself. I like to think I'm an attorney, but I'm not. Um, so we were all doing research on it and helping on the drafting and Joe's a pretty good drafter. But then at 2 a.m., we get this pretty close to final version of this memo for our, for our 9 a.m. meeting. We go down there and they have two members of the attorney general's office that are just, they have nothing written. And I'm a, I'm a written learner, I'm a written guy. If you're gonna make an argument about something legally, write it down. If you're gonna try to engineer a veto, write it down. I mean, this is a very important issue. They're coming up with all this verbal, you know, and, and of course, and this was one of Joe's concerns, but I kind of told him, hey, we gotta move forward with our plan. He's like, well, if we write it down, they're gonna come up with some new thing in the meeting. I understand, but we gotta, we gotta go at them hard. And that's what they did. They were, they were circulating. I mean, we, we obliterated their arguments and then they were coming up with new stuff and it wasn't even making sense. And then about an hour and a half in, and at some points it did get pretty heated, uh, they, he said, you know, Drew said, well, Okay, I mean, and, and they seem to change their mind. The tone changed the last 10 minutes of the meeting. So we go back up, we're debriefing, venting. We sit there all day and I ask Mark, you know, could you communicate what you're gonna do? And, but then 6 p.m. it comes in that he's not going to veto the bill. He's gonna allow it to become law. So a ban on crossover voting became the law of the land. And we were able to get that across the finish line. And I think that is a good moment for our state. And I understand people say, well, a lot of the Democrats have already crossed over. A lot of them have, but not all of them. A lot of them cannot stand being a Republican for more than a day. A lot of them would switch back on the way out. And I, I, I'm not saying it's gonna totally change results, but I think it's three to four points of people at least that will not want to change affiliation that early or, will, or you know, won't, won't do it. And then May 15th will pass, they've crossed back. And, and so I think it's gonna, it's a voter integrity issue ultimately to have a closed primary because that primary is the members of that party communicating who they want to represent that party in the general election. That'll do it for today's installment of the program. 
have a good week, and we'll talk again on Wednesday. But for now, from the base of the Bighorns in beautiful Buffalo, Wyoming, I'm David Iverson, and this is the one and only Cowboy State Politics.